the back. All right, excellent. So uh, thank you first and foremost for uh, sticking out to the last day for uh, what I consider a very important topic, and it's good to see so many folks interested in the topic of nutrition and pain management. Um, I've been uh, very interested in nutrition since med medical school, uh, where, as we all know, in medical training, it's not an area of great focus. And trying to figure out different pathways, both to help providers as well as patients utilize nutrition in an increasing manner. Uh, I've been at Scripps Clinic in San Diego for approximately the last 20 years. Okay. That sometimes can cause it not to work as well. Oh, no, no, I think that's a little better. So as I was saying, um, over, back, over the last approximately 20 years at Scripps, uh, we've tried different approaches, both individual, group classes, et cetera, cooking demonstrations, et cetera. So we'll talk about some of the ways that we try to get our patients to advocate for their own nutritional status. It's not an easy task, especially in a busy practice, but that's a little bit of what I'm gonna be talking about. Um, I also do work with uh, students and do teach at UCSD. Uh, medical school. So as we approach the topic, we're going to talk about both um, how we look at nutrition, why we're not using it more. We're going to talk a little bit about, uh, before we talk about implementing a nutritional program, the opposite. What does a poor nutritional uh, status have to do with um, poor pain management? How can it increase inflammation and pain? And I think that is a nice segue. We're also going to talk a lot about um, guidelines mostly in Europe, that are using nutrition more and more. And I really appreciated Dr. Lee uh, in the last presentation uh, noted the VA guidelines as one of the foundational things is nutrition and weight management. Um, it's under the self-care guidelines, and many of this um, is self-care, but it has to be something in many cases guided by us, our nutritional experts in the clinic. So you have my disclosures uh, as well. So the hope here is, or the hopeful question is, can nutrition help to reduce pain or inflammation or aspects of uh, pain that we have difficult managing with our patients? And I think there's a lot of questions there, a lot of hopeful questions. Um, the, the lived reality is the following, that nu our, our nutritional status in the United States is horrible. Um, and we know that CDC guidelines or CDC report said that less than one in 10 Americans actually gets enough fruits and vegetables, Diet is the leading cause of not just increased pain, but uh, many um, life-affecting uh, conditions, life-affecting issues, and death. So at the end of the day, what we hope for has to be nuanced and put into a patient perspective. And I also always like to discuss it in the perspective of a, a patient. This is a patient I've, I've had in my clinic for over a decade. Uh, and she's agreed to share her story. So over the trajectory, which started as low back pain and diagnosis of fibromyalgia, always on, uh, on top of um, or in the background of metabolic issues, uh, prediabetes, um, et cetera, obesity, to the point where she became disabled over the time that I had her. And we have tried multiple things, both conventional, integrative, acupuncture, et cetera, met many medications, many specialists. So at this point, it was not just how do we manage pain, but what next do we use? And she has what I would call pain plus. So it's not just pain, but it's insomnia, it's metabolic issues, it's depression, et cetera. Um, 
and she is here with her mom at Disneyland, one of our favorite places. So what do we do next? And so in many cases, we have to have a very frank discussion of if we're going to do nutrition, let's do it right. It's not just about increasing one more fruit or vegetable per day, but really how do we put it all together to kind of transform the metabolic picture. So before I get there, I just want to give a little background about what is nutritional pain management as I define it or the, the, the group that I work with defines it. And then we're going to talk about some of the other key factors there. So diet is many things. It's both what we eat, dietary supplements, what we might tell that patient, you know, take some extra B12. It's also uh, dietary patterns, Mediterranean, inflammatory, standard American, dietary triggers. Many of these folks have issues with foods that may increase their pain that we'll talk about. Um, so we, we talked about, we, we, we termed it nutritional pain management because it was more than just about diet or dietary supplements. It was really about how the World Health Organization talks about nutrition as a total uh, picture of everything we take in, diet, dietary supplements, other nutrients, teas, beverages, et cetera. So that's how we termed it. And just for a definition to get started, this is mostly with my work with Nancy Cotter, who works at the VA in New Jersey, um, talking about how to evaluate and help our patients improve their nutritional status to only, not only help their pain, but also some of the other factors like depression, uh, insomnia, that there's very good evidence, or emerging evidence at least, that things like the Mediterranean diet can not just improve pain, but also these other factors. So that's the definition we're going uh, under. The background is that nutrition does not get a lot of respect in pain management, and there's many reasons for that. Um, it's underutilized because in many cases, we don't have the confidence to say, can we actually transform this patient or this group of patients to have less pain just with something as simple as what we eat every day? And I think that, that is why many of the uh, research articles that I'm going to point out, and some of the ones I already did, always end in a question mark. And I'm hoping to hopefully change that over time and your confidence as well. Um, there's definitely undereducation. Um, in many cases, when we poll physicians that we um, have in our official six-hour course, which is what this is based on, uh, there's very poor levels of educational confidence in going about this. So we'll talk a little bit more about that. Let's see here. Your battery is running low, it says on my screen here. So I will use the old forward button if I can. Let's see here. There we go. Okay, and under training is part of that as well. Um, so one of the key things that we point out here is that many other conditions, uh, whereas heart disease, diabetes, et cetera, um, have guidelines that incorporate nutrition. It's not a question mark that if you're treating somebody with high cholesterol or heart disease that you're going to talk about nutrition. However, even in uh, psychiatry, Dr. Ramsey, who I know in the psychiatry world, their organization also has recently put out nutritional guidelines for important things that may help mood. But we don't have significant uh, guidelines in the area of pain management. Hopefully that's going to change in the next few years. This is what I was talking about with, with about nutrition and uh, our lack of confidence. So most of these articles you know, end in a question mark. Food and pain, does it matter what our patients eat? I don't know, question mark. Um, food and pain, does it matter what our patients eat? Same authors a few years later, same question mark. Um, so we still don't know. Is there a rule for diet in the therapy of rheumatoid arthritis? Maybe, maybe not. So we don't often have this in other uh, cases. Um, oops. So in continuing with that discussion, um, as we get things started on the slides, um, when we did our first training for physicians, which is uh, one of the slides I'm going to show you, 
Uh, we've trained approximately 400 clinicians in two different groups, cohorts, um, and the vast majority uh, felt undereducated. Only 6% felt prepared after their medical training to have a, an important discussion about nutrition with their patients to the point where we'd be part of their recommendations. Um, and I think that it tells you why we don't talk about it more. In addition to that, we have a lot of other factors, including the fact that it's time-consuming. Talking to patients about how to increase their food and vegetable intake or polyphenols or fiber is not a quick thing that we can just put on a script and send them out. We also know that access and uh, how are they going to incorporate this at home is important because trying to get fresh fruits and vegetables is different than just getting you know, a frozen meal or going down, you know, getting something grab-and-go on the way home. Uh, we also know from an educational standpoint, many of our patients uh, have changed their uh, mentality towards food. There is some very interesting research um, looking at as the trajectory of pain, someone who has chronic low back pain over decades, their food uh, preferences began to change over time, meaning that they go towards more quick hit foods, things like you know, high, uh, high saturated fat foods, uh, deep fried foods, very refined carbs, which may have a momentary improvement in their pain or mood, but really then have many hours and obviously beyond that months of metabolic uh, abnormality that, that, that is sort of the, the, the risk of that intervention. So we know patients eat differently as they become pained. They over time go for, uh, and, and cooking at many times for some, of, some folks who are disabled, have a hard time standing, can be quite difficult as well. So how do you get it very simply? Thank you very much. So, um, so we talked a little bit about the, let's see here. All right, let me go fast forward here a little bit. And we left off here about how a lot of this is question mark. Um, this is a older uh, editor, editor saying that we feel much more comfortable doing something simple like a medication script than in many cases using the actual food as medicine because it, it takes, there's many barriers there. Um, we also know that medical education, uh, what is recommended is very, not, very often not what is in the curriculum because there's many other things emerging that are kind of pushing nutrition out of the curriculum. And that's, that's, that's a trend that unfortunately is not getting better. Um, I mentioned this a little bit. These, this is uh, part of the course that we did now twice with several hundred clinicians, myself and Dr. Cotter. Um, folks, how much they learned about nutrition in medical school. Again, most folks minimal to none. Uh, Post-course, um, after our six-hour course, we were able to increase that and, and really hopefully give folks, uh, and some of these are resources at the end of the slides, uh, and there's an article that has some of these resources. This is an example of a brochure that's used at the VA in New Jersey, uh, developed by Nancy Cotter, approved by their committee there for how to transition folks to an anti-inflammatory meal. In addition to that, they have cooking classes, et cetera. So in each setting, it needs to be a little different, but a starting point is how do you begin to uh, increase an anti-inflammatory diet? Um, the conclusions were really that very few clinicians felt comfortable, but over time, it's something you can build confidence in, figure out quick ways to do it, sort of hacks in the clinic, bring in maybe folks into the clinic to do cooking demos, et cetera. So that's the background. Um, I do want to talk about the implications of not doing nutritional pain management, meaning continuing on the course of the standard American diet, which we know leading cause of death, et cetera. So 
Implications for pain, though, are, are specifically important to keep in mind. Where we want to start with is what I would call the state of the plate. Um, so in many cases, if we look at what we eat as a nation, it's mostly processed. It's not uh, you know, uh, well organic foods, fresh fruits and vegetables. It's mostly processed foods, the vast majority of what Americans eat on a day-to-day -day basis. Even the fruits and vegetables tend to be processed. So many of the nutrients that we hope we're getting from our diet, in many cases, for most Americans, is not happening. So just starting with that, uh, we know that a lot of the other things are going to go uh, kind of fall under. So we're going to have low intake of fruits and vegetables, polyphenols, fiber, uh, in many cases, low uh, amounts of omega-3s, high amounts of omega-6s. I'll be talking a lot about omega-3s and omega-6s. I'm not bashing omega-6s at all because they can be beneficial if they're well-sourced, but the vast majority of omega-6s that most of our American diet takes in is oils that are used for processed packaged foods that are not the good omega-6s. So um, that's a, an important distinction. Beyond diet and what we're actually eating, I think one thing that's typically overlooked is how we're preparing it, how we're eating it, how quickly we're preparing how quickly we're eating it, who we're consuming it with, or if we're eating it alone at our desk in, in like two seconds. And in many cases, that can cause an inflammatory burden, even if we're eating potentially something uh, healthy. Um, we're also oh, much more prone to deficiency because of many aspects of what I already mentioned. Um, when we take this to an animal model, this was an actual, uh, this is a, a European study that did what's called the total Western diet. It's another term for the standard American diet, but their take on it, the basically really refined grains and you know, uh, poor oil choices, and they gave it to animals, and they found over 13 weeks that it increased uh, nerve hypersensitivity, inflammation, and pain. Surprise, right? Um, so that experiment in the animal model definitely is something that, that increases pain potential. In a human model, uh, we don't have any prospective trials. I would argue that most of our patients are doing that trial every day before they come to our clinic and after they leave, but we don't have that prospective data, but you can take my word for it. What we do have is some retrospective and observational data that if you take a cohort of patients and look at their diet over time, uh, that those folks who score higher on the inflammatory burden index have a higher amount of pain based on their x-ray findings of osteoarthritis. So similar x-rays controlled for weight and other conditions like inflammatory issues like lupus, et cetera. And if you just look at a typical osteoarthritis patient on a poor inflammatory diet, they're going to have increased levels of pain versus those who don't. Um, and this is one of the larger trials as part of the osteoarthritis initiative. So we have pretty, a pretty good idea that an inflammatory meal is going to cause the average patient who is going on the pain trajectory to have more pain. Um, so how does this start? And this is just a few of the bubbles that come in to increase inflammation. I'm going to talk about a few of the specific ones. We're just going to go around the clock. Um, one of the key ones that I think most of us are very familiar with, um, although it's a very intricate topic, no, no clear understanding of how to intervene, is the microbiome. Um, we do know that the westernization of the diet, in addition to having low fiber and all that, really changes the microbiome. And that can happen very quickly. So I'm not saying one meal through the drive-thru um, does this, but it begins the process of, of decreasing diversity. And over time, we know that many 
uh, especially visceral pain conditions like uh, chronic pelvic pain, in some cases some of the GI disorders that we deal with, have also decreased diversity and some of the changes that are seen with the westernization of diet. So, um, where do, when, so when we talk about where does this diet pain um, trajectory start, I would say it starts in the gut. This is something that a lot of our colleagues in you know, kind of natural medicine have talked about a long time, but we now have some very good evidence of how this big bang starts. And that big bang starts with uh, the microbiome uh, or the GI tract increasing uh, LPS, lipopolysaccharide, as well as other markers of gut inflammation, things like zonulin. How many people here have heard of zonulin? So uh, a few. So zonulin is getting a lot of press uh, or you know, in the last few years as one of the reasons uh, why you know, gluten sensitivity may cause gut permeability. But in the setting of this uh, inflammatory or pain talk, we also know that zonulin causes some of those inflammatory markers to leave the gut um, to cause other areas of inflammation. And from there, it also can go to our adipose tissue and begin the process of increased propensity towards obesity and insulin resistance. So the big bang is really happening in our gut that's fed poorly. And when that happens, you have a downstream effect. Um, there is now some interesting data coming from the osteoarthritis and um, joint literature that's saying that in the gut, you can have some of, the air, some of the starting changes which go on to cause immune changes, which can end up in the joint. And we'll talk about some other mechanisms as well. So going back to the mechanism, the next thing is really the immune changes. So immune changes are very likely, especially in some of our patients, with fibromyalgia, POT, some of the amplified pain syndromes, chronic migraine, you see it where parts of their immune system, as this one example shows, the mast cells just kind of go crazy and begin to cause some of the tissue sensitivities that we know very likely uh, cause the symptoms that bring our patients in with visceral gut hypersensitivity, tissue hypersensitivity, et cetera. Next thing going around the clock is epigenetics. So they've done some interesting study studies, most of this animal research, but looking at uh, kind of uh, folks that have a predisposition uh, epigenetically, maybe having low methyl carriers, having uh, B12 deficiency th throughout their life, and they go into a setting such as surgery where that might imply where they're going to be potentially uh, amplify have an amplified uh, syndrome. And there are some studies now that persistent post-surgical pain is... Uh, very modifiable if we can track, if we can look at some of the epigenetic changes, especially with methyl carriers and donors that are, uh, are in need and then are not met when they go into surgery. So epigenetically, nutrition we know can also have a significant uh, ability. Um, deficiency is an important thing to keep in mind, especially in areas that affect pain like magnesium, vitamin D. Those are some of the most likely areas that... Um, have deficiency that we'll talk about. Um, as a quick example, magnesium deficiency has been noted in a number of studies to affect at least two-thirds of the population. In pain populations, I would say it's probably a little bit more. And when you hit that number, that percentage, you're going to start getting inflammatory changes, which a number of studies have also shown may be linked to CRP. As probably, I would say, it's not just CRP, but that's the one that we can assess quickly in our clinic but there's probably a lot of other inflammatory factors which go up when magnesium, which is very important in a lot of mechanisms, uh, NMDA, uh, et cetera, is not there in sufficient quality. A clinical example is folks that are magnesium deficient in the setting of headache. Um, 
based on a number of inflammatory markers, are 30 times, more than 30 times likely to go on to the next acute migraine. So looking at magnesium, which we've known about a lot in, in the migraine uh, uh, literature, is a key thing to try to replace, whether it's in diet or as a supplement. Coenzyme Q10 is a good example because it starts very early in life. This is a, a group of migraineurs uh, average age was, I think, 13 or 14, where they found that at that point, at least a third of them were already deficient in coenzyme Q10, which we also know is very important with uh, uh, free radical uh, scavenging, et cetera. So these patients are sort of ready to uh, have that next migraine because they cannot fight that oxidative stress. We'll come back to the second half of that study, which was a supplement study, to see how that helped those kids. Um, so the other factors here, as we go around is really important to keep in mind is obesity. And I want to show you a picture for a few reasons from the front page of the LA Times a few years ago. And I, and I, li I love showing this picture because uh, it's, the most, it's the most horrible way to take a waist-hip measurement, to put your chest right into uh, your face into somebody's chest. Um, and she's smiling. I'm not sure if the patient's smiling. Uh, but this was in the front page of the LA Times. And I said, are they really doing that in the clinic? But anyway, there's better ways, as you know, to do that. But the point of that is is that even though some studies have shown that our obesity may be stabilizing as a nation, our abdominal obesity is, is not. And I think that's the more dangerous obesity, the visceral fat. Um, I've written a little bit about this. as a free access article um, that I wrote about obesity-related pain and how obesity and pain sort of feed off of each other to kind of increase um, both the severity of both conditions. One of the unfortunate parts about obesity and pain is that uh, it increased the trajectory is much worse as we age much worse with higher levels of BMI, and much worse in women than men. So a lot of those factors go uh, hand in hand when we see somebody like Blythe, uh, my patient that I mentioned, coming into the clinic. This is kind of the perfect storm for someone who's aging, is female, is having worse obesity, and their pain is for many reasons, not just uh, joint loading or a kind of weight on the lower body, but for many reasons having uh, issues that are going to increase her pain. So. What I like to point out that none of these things happen in isolation. So when we have one factor, we many, many times have the other factor. So uh, two quick studies. Um, this was a study looking at kids that have high fructose consumption, i.e. a lot of soda, as well as low dietary magnesium, i.e. low fruits and vegetables. That begins that whole metabolic process which increases inflammation and potentially pain. We also know that there's another study looking at how magnesium uh, also not only causes inflammation through CRP mechanisms and other factors, but we know it has a lot to do with how it affects the NMDA receptor, which can go on to cause a lot of changes in our autonomic, uh, our, um, uh, autonomic nervous system as well as immune system to increase pain and metabolic uh, issues. So it's a lot about how all these things work together. And when we have that standard American diet and we have that low-grade inflammation and we have all those cross-promoters, and we have the increased pain, we also have to consider the fact that these patients are changing their mood, they're changing their, their compliance with medications, it's harder to cook, it's harder to do the things that we want them to do. Um, one study uh, of the diabetic research of folks uh, with chronic pain related to diabetes, such as neuropathy, found that they have less compliance with some of the self-care measures that we all endorse, but in many cases can be difficult and more difficult to incorporate. One other interesting study, just to finalize the discussion of implications, is we think about um, adipose tissue as just kind of isolated in certain areas, but the key factors from uh, the adipose tissue, the adip uh, adipokines, 
uh, which for the most part are pro-inflammatory. There are some uh, ones that are anti-inflammatory that are trying to kind of balance the picture, but many of the uh, adipokines leave that area, and emerging research showed that they end up in areas where that person may have carpal tunnel, shoulder pain, neck issues, that this is also another mechanism why obesity may kind of spill over to cause increased pain, even in areas that are not weight-bearing joints. So um, two uh, studies to point out that as CRP increases, that we have increased uh, areas, er, increased low back pain, and another study looking at basically uh, elevated CRP doubles the chances that that person will have symptomatic low back pain versus those who don't while controlling for uh, inflammatory, overt inflammatory sources. And this is another study looking in in, an older population showing the same thing, basically, that inflammation can be one of the key factors for increasing pain. Um, So that's what happens when we don't do nutritional pain management, sort of as a segue to the next uh, setting, which is what happens when we try to implement this to reverse the tide. So as I mentioned, uh, this is not uh, you know, a simple intervention or a simple handout to say, okay, we're going to totally reverse your diet and reverse inflammation and everything's going to be hunky-dory. It's a very difficult process that needs to kind of look at all these factors, obesity, their immune status, their medications, their activity level, their mood, their sleep, etc. So um, where to begin can be difficult. Um, we work a lot with our team. We have nutritionists on our team, uh, nurses who are very adept at uh, nutritional education, and we start very simple. We uh, start with the P's and R's, as we call it in our clinic. There's many different ways to look at it, but we talk about the P's being important. That, that's mainly looking at preparation before we jump into, hey, let's increase your... Um, my again. All right, please let me know if that happens again. If I'm dropping off, I apologize. Um, so the preparation is the most important part um, before you jump into the actual foods because I think if they're behaviorally ready for it, uh, it's much more likely to take. Um, so there's many things in preparation. There's a great resource, Mindful Eating, that talks about sort of the mindset of not just kind of quickly shoveling in the food, but where do you get the food? How do you prepare the food? Another overlooked area is, is the preparation. Um, and the pace, and what kind of pattern are you putting together. So those are the big picture items. Uh, There's a lot of research emerging on uh, glycation end products, um, the advanced uh, glycation end products, AGEs. How many have heard of AGEs? So this is really how you prepare it. If it's in really, uh, you know, uh, overly heated situations, charred, you know, in some cases that's maybe what that patient really prefers, but can that be altered with some of the simple steps? And some of these uh, resources, additional resources, are also in the end of the, uh, end of the slide set. Um, this can become kind of another factor that connects obesity to pain. So how they prepare the food, even if it's a you know, great piece of salmon and broccoli, how they're preparing it might actually uh, have a lot of uh, effect on the inflammatory cascade. So can how quickly they eat it. Some studies uh, have shown that people who are fast eaters, less than 15 minutes, they also have a category of super fast eaters, which is most of us at lunchtime between, before our next patient, of less than five minutes, completing a, a, a meal in less than five minutes. So talking to our patients about slowing down as best they can, because in many cases, 
this is part of the process of reducing inflammation. That slowing down also, for many reasons, reduces the number of calories, as well as even if calories are controlled, can, can reduce inflammation because in many cases, the, the body's more ready to handle the calories that are coming in. Um, preparation also means, in some cases, laboratory studies. Some of these are very traditional things, like taking a look at their glucose and insulin and connecting the dots and saying, okay, Blythe, a lot of what's going on here is having to do with your metabolic system and inflammation it causes that can spill over to your joints. Um, there's also some hormonal things that we check. Many of these folks uh, have issues there. We also try, if, if we can, look at some of the adipokines. Now, leptin, like insulin, can become resistance and start in the teens and go towards the triple digits, and that needs to hopefully be reduced over time. Uh, adiponectin, which is the good guy that are, for the most part, a good guy that our adipose tissue secretes, can kind of go into hiding, uh, and, and we want that to increase over time. So we try to uh, do these tests as best we can. Sometimes you don't have access to that. At least you can get started. We also try to look at zonulin, which is an emerging risk factor, as well as LPS to see if that big bang is really happening in their gut. In many cases, we can assume that, but if you can show it to a patient, sometimes that helps to uh, get that kind of process started of how their nutrition uh, affects their pain. Uh, just a few references on zonulin, uh, as that is a, an emerging topic to uh, be aware of. I think it has a lot to do with connecting nutrition and pain. So deficiency is something that many of us are familiar with. Uh, vitamin D, B12, magnesium, we've talked about it. Um, I would say uh, if you can test for those, great. Um, I do a lot of testing, especially my migraineurs, where things like coenzyme Q10 carnitine. If I can, I get an omega-3 status. Uh, because some people say, you know, I eat fish, you know, a few times a week, but it's how it's prepared, what kind of fish, how it's sourced, that would be very surprised to show that their omega status is actually very poor and also pushed aside by their high levels of inflammatory omega-6s. So that helps as well to help change that. So once we kind of go through the preparation, we deal with uh, allergens. I'm not going to talk too much about that. Uh, we talk about the patterns of what they're actually taking in. And I think in that area, an ideal diet, uh, and I apologize, the last one should be uh, nutrient replete, so no nutrient deficiencies if you can handle that. But we try to get uh, folks towards increasing their fiber intake, fruits and vegetables, high polyphenols, adequate protein, which I'm going to cover, um, increasing their omega-3s in diet or supplementation, and then reducing other inflammatory triggers as best we can. And we'll talk about some of the other nuances as well. So the pattern, one of the patterns, there's a lot of discussion of what is an anti-inflammatory diet. I think one of the key factors of an anti-inflammatory diet is how to make it low glycemic so they're not eating a lot of refined grains that's going to sort of shoot up their insulin, even if they're not insulin resistant, to a point where that doesn't then cause an inflammatory cascade. So we know that a low glycemic index can help not just with weight management in some cases, but also reducing the inflammatory cascade. Um, and a good example is some types of a Mediterranean diet. So because that also has a lot of different definitions, it can mo be modified to improve uh, the glycemic load that's happening. And sometimes that's not about just the carbs, but how the carbs are, are taken in uh, with uh, good fats and good proteins. A good research study that was done recently looked at, you know, what's the first food you put into your mouth? And if it tends to be more the, the carbs, then you're going to have more of that insulin uh, resistance uh, that's kind of rolling through. And that makes a lot of sense, uh, but not something we th the patients think about when they're at uh, a dinner table or when they go out and eat and there's a huge basket of bread or tortilla chips. 
it's sort of loaded against our patients. They have to make really wise choices and difficult choices to bring in the protein and the fat first so that they do not have that high uh, sort of insulin spike. We also know that increasing dietary fiber, most Americans do not meet guidelines, not just for fruits and vegetables, but obviously uh, dietary fiber. They're eating somewhere in the teens, and we're trying to get it over 20 grams a day. And as that increases over time, which you can't do overnight because there can be some GI upset as they're doing that, but if they can increase that, we know that that decreases inflammation. Uh, what we can also tell patients is that as they're increasing fiber and reducing inflammation, there's also evidence that it begins to reduce joint pain. So again, not, this is not all one body of research, one research article, but we do know that several um, uh, studies have begun finding a link between fiber and progression of knee arthritis. So it's something that we can actually tell our patients, this, is, this can help your knee pain uh, for the most part. Polyphenols, so just to break it down, that's what gives fruits and vegetables their color, uh, their vibrant color, but it also is what gives them their antioxidant and anti-inflammatory uh, ability. And there's many, many in examples. The Environmental Working Group is a great place to look these up, great handouts. It can tell them also which ones are the safest to take if they can't afford organic, um, you know, so the, the, the clean 15 or a dirty dozen is what they come up with every year. Um, so the clean 15 are, it's okay for the most part. If it's not organic, they can get organic all the time, wonderful, but if they, they can't, that's how they can uh, begin the process. Uh, this is an interesting, all of this is pilot. I would say we need better prospective studies, but feeding fibromyalgia patients a higher polyphenol, i.e. higher fruits and vegetables, diverse fruits and vegetables improves their symptoms. Now you can look at that in many ways. It could be that they're not eating that sad diet. You know, they're not putting you know, something in the microwave. They're actually looking at what they're eating. They're aware of what they're eating. But it's also the antioxidant potential that begins to help them. And in many cases, it's not just their pain, but also their quality of life, which can spill over and improve their pain. So many potential mechanisms. Uh, one of the mechanisms to the polyphenols um, is some of the factors that it changes in the gut. This is one factor that has been linked to both improving that big bang that's happening in the gut, reducing LPS, reducing zonulin, and potentially uh, going on to reduce pain by reducing gut inflammation based on increasing uh, polyphenols. What about protein? Just transitioning to that, I think it's very important. We know proteins are sort of the, the building blocks of a lot of the uh, neurotransmitters and uh, some of the communicating factors that if that's not happening, inflammation can increase. In addition to that, we know that it's very important for muscle stores. As we age, it becomes even more important because it's more difficult in many cases to process and absorb. So there's been a lot of research to show that even if, uh, when we talk about an adequate protein intake, we're not talking about super duper because most patients aren't even meeting adequate, you know, the 0.8 uh, um, grams per kilogram. They're much less than that. So part of that is just to make sure they're getting that. And they're also splitting it up throughout the day so they're not getting all their protein at dinner time or at one meal. It's very important to decrease inflammation, especially in the muscle. Um, this is another uh, uh, study that looked at a larger cohort that said that higher intakes of protein, getting it closer to one uh, gram per kilogram, and in some cases a little bit more, is very important. Other studies have also shown that it's very important right after activity. So you're trying to get this pain patient to have more time with walking. It's important to get some protein after that to help with uh, muscle rebuilding. 
Uh, as they're beginning to lose weight, hopefully, uh, high protein has also been shown to help with a num number of other factors um, with insulin resistance, uh, et cetera, so to help them keep the weight off and stay healthy. So how do you put this all together in a practical real-world setting? So I'm going to give you a few examples, knowing that we all come from different clinics. Um, this is a great study um, out of England, uh, excuse me, uh, Scot uh, Glasgow, Scotland, where they tried to transition a population that had no idea what the Mediterranean diet was, that had low food and vegetable intake, and teach them how to cook uh, in that regard for about six weeks and then follow them for another uh, six months. Um, so, and this was in a low-income low uh, area, and they did some uh, cooking education, very low cost and found that it had significant improvement in these patients' rheumatoid arthritis scores, medication use, uh, both after the course ended and at six months out. So a very um, you know, basic cooking class with written information, kind of regular follow-up for about six weeks can be very important. There are some studies, one that I'm going to reference, that basically did this after hours in a clinic in the waiting room. So after the clinic was done, bring in your knee arthritis patients who might have obesity, who are interested in kind of helping their nutritional status, Something like that can be done. So here's a few other references that have done it. Uh, this is another uh, study that, that basically was doing it in a pain clinic of teaching patients uh, some, some very basic anti-inflammatory anti diet uh, options to look at. So in Europe, uh, they actually have a, what they call a food pyramid for subjects with chronic pain. I would say this, is, this reads a little bit different uh, from our uh, U.S. perspective. So some of the things down here like the first thing at the bottom is like drinking mineral water. Not all of our patients are gonna know, you know what, what is that talking about, and some of the areas are a little bit different than what we're used to, but hopefully in the next few years, and this is one of the things that we're working on, is trying to help build a food pyramid for pain patients here in the US. But the same uh, basic things are important. You know, low glycemic diet, trying to increase uh, healthy proteins, et cetera. So I do want to also talk about some of the supplements uh, that I think come up a lot with our patients. I'm going to talk about some of the kind of the top four or five. Uh, I've given you my, my cheat sheet for some of the other ones that we use when we, we give handouts to our patients. So these are all referenced. Some of this is for headaches. Some of this is for chronic pain or joint pain. So you have two pages of that. But uh, I'm going to give you the, the, the most important ones, in my opinion, are omega-3s, which many of, our, many of our patients don't get enough in their diet. Um, we do know from some older research, just, this is a, a, one of the first meta-analysis on this, found that in multiple conditions, inflammatory conditions, it can reduce inflammation, it can reduce pain, and reduce medication use, especially if you're reaching above one gram per day, going towards two to three grams. More uh, recent research has shown that omegas also can increase endorphin production. Uh, our, our endorphins, obviously, are very important with pain management. This is something that can... Uh, be important for that. And, and we're getting emerging research also. Whoops. That one caught before it ended up in my socks. So, all right. We're good. Okay. I'm on to you, microphone. All right. So, the resolvents. How many people here have heard resolvents? So, you're going to hear a lot about resolvents in the next you know, few years. Resolvents are the downstream of what we know of, uh, as far as EPA and DHA. The next set of kind of things you're going to talk about, hear about is resolvents. And those are the most anti-inflammatory component of fish oils. They're present in all fish oils that, and fish, 
but some, some of the uh, supplements that are going to be coming out are going to have higher potencies of resolvance. And this is some research that was done by Dr. Uh, Sirhan. I'm gonna, that's going to be in the next slide. But this is a research article out of UCLA that basically just increased omega-3s, which hopefully over time will also increase the resolvance, and reduced the inflammatory omega-6s. This is a great uh, free access article because at the end, it just talks about here's the diet we told our headache patients to follow. And what they did is they find that people that were having increased omega-6s had higher, uh, you know, higher amounts of headaches and people who were able to, or excuse me, people that just lowered their omega-6s had some improvement in total acute medications but not total adjunctive. But people who both increased omega-3s and reduced omega-6s had significant improvement in both medication categories. So just changing the diet categories can be helpful. This added omega-3s uh, in about a gram and a half to amitriptyline in patients that we may be starting on for migraines and found the responder rate pretty much doubled. So that's an important thing to keep in mind. This can be added on to pretty much any medication. Um, there's been a lot of talk about this conference and most pain conferences about endocannabinoids. Omega-3s do interact with the endocannabinoid system. So that's, that's a very interesting phenomenon that as we're figuring out, okay, how are we going to increase endocannabinoids in our patients and do we use CBD, do we use this or that, that you know, increasing their omega-3s is kind of a starting point to do that. Um, transition to magnesium, I want to be cognizant of time here, okay, uh, is the fact that uh, we know that mag- most patients that we see in our pain clinic are going to be mag deficient. Uh, we try to endorse that, and one of the key things is it's a long-term process. So this is one of the better studies, in my opinion, because it's a five-year study of folks with uh, diabetic neuropathy or starting neuropathy. They found that if you catch them early, put them on magnesium, there can be some reversal in some of the nerve conduction study. Um, but the longer you wait, the harder the benefit is. But in either case, if you do start them on magnesium uh, over the five years, uh, most of them will hold their own or get some improvement. Some will worsen, but that's much better than the folks who are the controls who will worsen much more significantly. So magnesium is definitely important. Uh, this was uh, another study that looked at a micronutrient supplement that basically versus a placebo was able to significantly decrease neuropathy scores. And this was kind of across the board, a number of other nutrients and B vitamins that were important. Uh, magnesium is also important for uh, sleep, muscle tension, all the things that we know about, but it might ha- also have some benefit in patients uh, who are having pain, not just reducing inflammation, but having better sleep quality. Uh, so we don't have any recent um, headache uh, guidelines, but the most recent ones is the Canadian study uh, did show some um, uh, areas of strong research with butterbur riboflavin. Um, lesser so for the coenzyme Q10. And magnesium, the main thing here is there's so many different types of magnesium. Many studies are stopped early because of GI issues. So you really have to find a formulation that your patients can tolerate to get up to uh, kind of the, the several hundred milligrams uh, that uh, the guidelines do endorse. That cannot be done too quickly in many cases because you're basically creating uh, hyperactive bowel. So go slowly. CoQ10 is typically much better tolerated. Um, and just to uh, finalize this, this study, uh, or this nutrient was the one that was used in the Canadian study. And those, those pediatric patients that were able to go on uh, coenzyme Q10, in that study it was, it was dosed, I believe, three milligrams per kilogram. So they were roughly on maybe 50 to 150 milligrams, depending on age and size. 
And those uh, patients were able to not only reduce their PEDS MITA score, but also quality of life, headache uh, severity. So that's an easy thing to intervene with and very safe in our uh, younger population. Transition to vitamin D, we think of it as just a vitamin. Um, well, in fact, it has a lot of effects on our um, uh, inflammatory system, uh, glutathione production, and just in general, our inflam inflammatory cascade. So uh, we, we know that based on that, when we're low, it can increase nerve hypersensitivity in a number of conditions, not just fibromyalgia, although that's been uh, well publicized. So in most conditions, having a low vitamin D is not going to be that pain patient's friend. There's been some guidelines, don't test vitamin D, don't treat vitamin D. I think, unfortunately, for the general population, that may be okay, but in many cases, our pain patients are more likely to have low vitamin D based on their diet and also their inflammatory condition, which kind of uh, reduces vitamin D load. So this is a great example of uh, patients with low back pain. They were put on a moderate dose of 4,000 IUs of vitamin D3. In addition to reducing their pain, you can see that also versus placebo, there was a significant reduction in some of the inflammatory markers with other areas controlled. So it does have an anti-inflammatory effect, especially as you get them from sort of bottom of the basement to moderate levels. Um, this is a good article, just if you put in the title, it's a free access article that kind of reviews a lot of the, some of the ones I've talked about and some of the other ones like ginger and green tea that we don't have time to, which also help uh, reduce inflammation. One of the herbs I did want to talk about is curcumin um, from turmeric. Um, it can be very uh, helpful, especially when you reach about 500 to 1,000 milligrams per day in reducing certain types of pain. Most beneficial, most of the research is in near osteoarthritis. Uh, one of the key things I like about this is that in addition to having an anti-inflammatory and anti-pain effect is that we know that it can also help with a glycemic uh, helping with uh, glucose control. This is a study that found that patients who put, were put on curcumin versus placebo were able to improve their hemoglobin A1C and glucose uh, levels. So keep that in mind. Um, I would say also, without going into too much detail because we don't know what's the best type of uh, probiotic for our pain patients, although some, some information is emerging, it can have a significant benefit in aspects of that gut inflammation. We're talking about the, the Big Bang, in many cases, probiotics in the right setting. I don't throw everybody that might have gut issues on a probiotic because they may have issues with SIBO or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So in some cases, you need to kind of reduce the bad bugs or the kind of the overgrowth before you put in the probiotics. And you need to be careful in some cases, but we're learning more about that. So as we're kind of winding down, I again want to come back to the European perspective. You remember the food pyramid? This is another great research uh, um, conference. It was called Feed Your Destiny. It was a European uh, meeting. Uh, unfortunately, I did not get invited to go to Italy, but hopefully next time. Uh, but they are way ahead of us. I would say they are getting the picture that you know, we need to start incorporating this area in a major way if we're going to have the best ability to help our patients. Um, and part of that is we know that in some cases this can have a win-win for us as we're trying to manage their medications, uh, their NSAIDs, uh, their um, uh, other anti-inflammatories, their opioids. This may have some ability to kind of help us in that, in that struggle. Um, it also may have some benefit, as I mentioned earlier, in their non-pain areas. Some of these dietary patterns like the Mediterranean diet can definitely improve areas like sleep and mood. It makes sense because as they're becoming de-inflamed, 
less pain, less issues. Um, many of us are familiar with the IDEA trial. This is a weight management trial for knee patients with osteoarthritis and found out over time not only was, was uh, their uh, um, pain reduced, but their life uh, improvement and function was improved. Key point here, 5% weight loss to get 25 to 30% reduction in pain and, and function. So it's not just about massive weight loss so there's less load than their knees. It's about kind of reducing that cellular inflammatory cascade, that smoldering inflammation that's been there forever. So uh, also finishing up with my patient, Blythe, uh, she was involved in one of our uh, group classes probably two years ago. Um, it was a 12 to 16 week uh, pilot. We do about eight to 10 patients at a time. We work with our uh, PT folks, our nutritionists. Um, we do a little bit of a cooking class, not really that much, but in her case, just as a kind of an example, she was able over that you know, 16 weeks to lose uh, a moderate amount of weight, you know, about 22 pounds. But what's important here is she actually lost more total weight but gain some muscle mass, which I think in our, a lot of our pain patients, they're going in the opposite tra trajectory. And that, I think, is really important. How much muscle can these folks build? She had significant improvement in her insulin and glycemic control and was able to, over time, get back and become uh, less disabled. So this is, this is a best-case scenario. There's many folks where the diet may not have as much impact, but if metabolic issues are part of the pain picture, I think it can. Um, and so in conclusion, I just want to say... As we're trying to optimize this, it's an area that has a diverse mechanism. In your patient, it might be their gut dysbiosis. It might be uh, autoimmune issues. It might be other factors like nutrient deficiency. So we need to kind of take a big picture, prepare the patient as best we can before we start that stepwise process. And wherever you can start, fiber uh, increasing, uh, how they choose their foods, et cetera, can be very important. Um, and I hope more and more as we increase this, we have... Uh, ability to incorporate in our pain uh, clinics uh, with cooking classes. We do need legislation and advocacy. This is an example of Minnesota's, um, uh, it's called Double Up Foods. So it allows people on food stamps and assisted food programs to get double the value if they choose to go to a farmer's market and get fresh fruits and vegetables. So it's a multi-pronged solution and I hope that we can all be part of it. Thank you so much for your attention. Uh, as I mentioned, a lot of resources uh, are in your handouts as well. I'm happy to help with any questions that we might have. I think we're getting ready for the next session. So I might take a few questions up here if I have time. And yeah? Okay. Are there any questions uh, I can take in the podium or I can step down as well? There's one there and then we'll come back up here. Nice and loud, please. Oh, there's a microphone that's coming right behind you. Thank you. The type of magnesiums that people prescribe is it's like which which one is your favorite which one do you think is the best absorption okay. is the least side effects yeah great question uh so i think it has to be individually uh tailored some patients can manage just the kind of the regular over-the-counter mag citrate uh or um uh that's kind of a typical one some people can't so i use the buffered ones like magnesium uh glycinate and there's other ones that are buffered with amino acids, so it's sort of a slower process of absorption uh, to help it not be like milk of magnesia. We know that magnesium uh, citrate and similar things can be very uh, kind of toxic, not toxic, but can kind of put people's gut in fast forward. For some patients who may be on a lot of medication, that may be great. But if you had to choose, I would just probably use something like magnesium glycinate, start at 200 milligrams and go up. And that's one of the ones in, the, in your handout as well. So um, the microphone, any other questions there?
one in the front here. So what serum level of vitamin D do you shoot um, for? So I think our, our, um, our lab shows 20 as deficient nanograms from uh, milliliters, uh, millimoles, millimolars, and 30 is sufficient. I try to get to around 50. Uh, I'm not trying to get them into triple digits. Uh, I've never had an issue with toxicity, but I think in most of our patients, it goes very slowly anyway. So I think if I can get them into the 40s and 50s, knowing that there's going to be some drop, especially in the wintertime, that has a little bit of a buffer, that's kind of where I try to, that's my sweet spot. But many folks, I find that they take, they get into like the 30s, you know, they get to 31, they think their job is done. I think that's still a little bit too low. Yeah. Other questions? Another question on um, the magnesium supplement, how much would you recommend giving even if they're not deficient? Interesting question, yeah. So well, one quick thing on the vitamin D, just make sure it's vitamin D3 um, as opposed to D2. Sometimes the prescription ones are D2. Those are okay if that's all you have to work with, but D3 is a little more, can be activated more quickly. And I try to do it daily as opposed to weekly. But as far as magnesium, I try to get to at least two to 300 milligrams, even if I don't know their magnesium status, which is typical because not everyone's going to check it. And the magnesium test is pretty inaccurate because that's looking at only about 1% of your uh, kind of circulating magnesium. So at least two to 300. And then we try to support that with a handout on increasing magnesium through you know, whole grains, nuts, et cetera, as best we can to get them to like four to 500. Yeah, good question. Yes. Let me just have this on the mic so it's on the oh. recording. Yeah, thank you. Do you, you have a specific uh, brand that you prefer for your, your nutraceuticals, your supplements, or? That is a great question. I, I um, do run a conference uh, going into the 17th year at Scripps on that specific question, or it's all about nat natural therapies and natural supplements. What comes down to it is it varies. There's not one brand that I think you can rely on, and I would say it's hard to... There's many good brands out there, and unfortunately, I can't, I can't really say one brand, but right. I would say look, talk to your local pharmacist, dietitians, see what's available in your area, work with a pharmacy that you can find that has medical-grade products that you can say, okay, Mrs. Jones, please try to go to them. They're cost you know, reasonable. That's the best, as opposed to them going to like a store with there's 80 types of magnesium and curcumin. First of all, they're going to hate you because... They've lost like three hours of their day. But if you can look for one pharmacy that you can connect with, that would be the way to go. Thank you. Yeah. I think that might be it. I'll be around for a few minutes. Thank you again for being here. Appreciate